Hello, and welcome to the Art of the Cut podcast, brought to you in partnership with Boris Effects and our sponsor, Junk Desktop. I'm Steve Hallfish. I'm a working film and TV editor. For the last nine years, I've done more than 400 interviews with the world's best editors. I've been using Boris Effects products for almost 30 years, and I'm proud to partner with them to bring you some great filmmaking content. Today, we're talking with Oscar nominee and multiple BAFTA nominee, Barney Pilling, ACE, about editing Wes Anderson's Asteroid City. Barney has been nominated for BAFTAs for his editing of Spooks, Life of Mars, and the Grand Budapest Hotel. He was also nominated for a BAFTA and won an Ace Eddie for the Grand Budapest Hotel. His other work includes Mrs. Harris Goes to Paris, Annihilation, and Suffragette. Also numerous TV series including Outcasts, Playhouse Presents, and Mum. Before I hop into our discussion with Barney, a brief thank you to our sponsors. Jump Desktop is a high-performance and secure app that lets you virtually connect to your editing bay as if you were physically there. Keep all your assets in one place and connect to your powerful editing bays from anywhere. Jump Desktop's high-performance remote desktop protocol lets you edit from any low-powered laptop. With end-to-end encryption, native support for Mac OS and Windows, and multi-monitor support, you can be productive from anywhere. Jump Desktop also has collaborative screen sharing for collaboration with your team. See what thousands of editors have been using to get their work done from across the world. Visit jumpdesktop.com cut to begin your free no-limits 14-day trial today. And to our partner, Boris Effects. I've been using Boris Effects and Sapphire for more than 20 years, so they're not just a sponsor to me. I feel like they've been a partner in my cutting room for decades, helping me to deliver on the creative vision of my clients, directors, and producers. For all of us, our work is about bringing a creative idea to the screen, and for me, Boris Effects is one of the important tools that I use to do that. To see how they can help you on your latest project, head on over to BorisFX.com and check out the Boris Effects suite, which includes Sapphire, Continuum, Mocha Pro, Silhouette, and Optics, all in a low-cost monthly or annual subscription. If you want to read this interview with great visual support, you can go to BorisFX.com AOTC. That site has other great filmmaking content, so keep that bookmarked. And now, Barney Pilling, ACE, on editing Wes Anderson's Asteroid City. Thank you so much for joining me. When I was looking at your IMDb page, I think we have an unlikely thing in common, which is that my career path does not include being an assistant editor, and it looks like your career path does not include being an assistant either. It was very quick. I was an assistant for two projects which lasted less than, I guess, nine months in total. So yeah, less than a year of assisting. And really the first time I did it, the show was so under the radar in a sense. It wasn't a huge popular TV show in England. I was given a chance by people that believed in me. And basically the tech crew at the hired company, the avid hired company did as much assisting on that show as I did because I was forever on the phone to them saying, how do I make the avid do this now? How does this work? I was really learning on the hoof on the first one. And that sort of even continued the first edit job I did. I was so green when I got my first edit job that you build relationships with these companies. I'm sure you, you know, this sort of, um, uh, stellar ones that you like to work with people that have supported you and given their time free to help someone young in the industry. And I was lucky to have that with Hyperactive, as they were used to be called, but then became Hireworks and Phil Kent down there was one of the tech guys that really babied me through an exceedingly short assisting period. And as soon as I could put things on the timeline and start being creative, 
that just swallowed my whole existence in a lucky way because of the opportunities I got, but I, I didn't get into editing or I didn't find myself the edit desk wanting to just be a, a technical support role. It was a burning need to be creative and I was very lucky and it worked out perfectly. What was it, what the relationships, your collaboration style, what was it that made someone want to work with you at the beginning? The first job in the actual edit suite I got came straight after my first job as a production runner. I was in the production office as, as a production runner for a production coordinator who is now my wife of 30 years and the mother of our children, in actual fact, just for full-on serendipity. But I was on for prep. It was the first job I'd done as, as a runner. And I'd come from a background of making dance music, digitally making dance music, so sequencing early Pro Tools, eMagic, Cubase, Atari 1080 STs. I'd seen the digital timeline. I was pretty familiar with that, certainly for audio, but the concept is almost identical. You just add picture for the Avid. And I couldn't make that work. I wasn't good enough at that. And I wheedled my in, way in on the very bottom rung as a production runner. And we were in prep probably for six weeks, running around, photocopying scripts, picking things up for the art apartment before the shoot got going. And then maybe 10 days before the shoot date was happening, my boss slash wife said, the edit suites are being delivered today. Can you help the hire company bring it all in and put it all together? And I helped them do it and I helped them unbox it. And with every box that I opened with them to help them, I just fell in heaven. I'd never seen an edit suite until I unboxed them with the high company and new instant. This is where I need to be. And it was a, a sort of a fairly long running show. I guess it was maybe 10 episodes of one, 10 one hour episodes. So I was on the show as a runner for a long time. And just in every spare minute I got during night shoots as well, there were lots of long, lonely nights when the editors had gone. I just bombarded them with enthusiasm, which I didn't have to force. It was just natural. It was, can I have a go on this? Can, I, can you show me how this works, please? And I was affable enough and helpful enough during the day and didn't get in the way. I wasn't over the top with it. And of course, uh, it was a location shoot. There was quite a lot of people up from London living in Manchester working on this. So that tends to mean there's a, a fairly decent social aspect to the filmmaking process as well, so that they would all go out together and I lived locally. So I would go out with them too. And we just became friends. And they were incredibly supportive. Leona Delgadici, Steve Singleton, Mike Jones, stalwarts of British television editing. I just attached myself to them and did as much as I could, spent as much time in there as I could. And by the end of that very first job as a runner, they were leaving the avids running for me on night shoot. But they'd go home and say, look, we'll make you an area in the project that you can't break anything. They'd show me how to switch it on. They'd show me the basics of the source monitor. And I knew what was happening on the timeline. That didn't need any explanation. Sure. But I needed a little bit of conversion therapy to get from Cubase to Avid. And then in the mornings, they'd come in and over the morning coffee, they'd look up what I'd done and credit me with it or say, what on earth are you doing with that bit? That's not good. And I guess that's really the very first and almost only kind of official training I got in editing in a way was their guidance and their willingness to support an enthusiastic, affable kid who 
clearly loved what he was seeing in the cutting room. One of those editors was going on to another TV show and he just said, look, you just come and assist me. Just do it. Let you know, what the heck? I'm a quick learner. I care. I'm a digital kid. And I came from an environment with MIDI and signal paths and sampling. And so technically it's not like I was an app. It was just a transference of skill. And he took a chance on me, like having me around. He'd seen enough, I think, in the rough scratch edits I'd been doing on the night shoots to think, ah, this, I think, I think he even said, can I use that one? <laughs> yeah, of course you can. He said, that's really good. That's good. This is going to be good. And he was true to his word. And then I did one more show with him. And then from that, the director that he was working with then hired me as the editor on his next show. It happened that quick. We're definitely a community and we look out for each other and it's always very open. And when someone is polite and enthusiastic and clearly wants to do the job that we all care about so much, I mean, it defines me, this job. And when you see somebody that, that could potentially be that themselves and have a life where they can get that much reward from it, then yeah, you just want to encourage it. I saw that this was shot mostly in Spain. Were you on location or near location? What's the benefit of that? It's part and parcel of what makes working with Wes very, very special is he treats the community much like we just discussed about the sort of the family, if you like. They are my second family now, I think, after working with Wes for 10 years. And it's very, very important to him that the location that we're at and the time that we all have together which can be brutally hard work, as we all know, on one side of the coin. But the other side of the coin is, hey, we're here. Infuse yourself with this place that we're in. Be social together. It's active encouragement for, um, not just for, for technical reasons for me to be close to set, but for the community spirit reasons for us all to be together. West keeps it a very tight-knit group. It's utterly essential to how we do things that, that we're all together. And the other thing being how crucial when you're in Spain and you've, he and, and Adam Stockhausen have created a town out of nowhere that to realize six months into post-production that we're missing something or something doesn't work to then try and even begin to figure out how to get something that you think you need. It is impossible. The art departments and the creation of the worlds that Wes has in his movies, they take such a build, such a design, uh, you know, physical thing. So we have to exploit that for everything that it's worth when we're there. So for Wes to be able to come off set and go, I'm not sure this is going to work today. I have a feeling about this, the standard that, you know, that didn't quite work. Or you know, maybe we didn't get that dolly quite right. Let's really hammer that scene now and see how we feel about it and really intensely put certain scenes together. Now, we don't do that for the whole movie because a lot of it he knew on the day and then two days later when the film gets back to me, old school style, and I see it, you realize there's no problems here at all. So let's go where the squeaky wheel is. This scene has a problem. And rework it in the edit and then that gives him... And the first AD, the opportunity to go, okay, well, that's no problem. We can slot another afternoon in on that set. Nobody struck it, it's all here. Let's just go and get that close if you think you need it. 
On um, French Dispatch, I talked to Andy Weisblum about the fact that there's an animatic of the entire film. Is that something that happened on this film? It began with Fantastic Mr. Fox, his first animated movie, where that's the heart of the thing for many years, and I guess a good two years before the animation can start. And on Grand Budapest, we had one for that too. It ran out at about 81 minutes. It never got finished. So we'd actually stuck. I, I tell you, like, it did get finished, but it got finished after we'd filmed it because we can't leave any I's undotted or any T's uncrossed. But yeah, it went to the big gun showdown in the hotel towards the end of the movie in the third act, and then it ran out. Was that an assistant nope. or did you cut it? No, Wes works with an editor called uh, Ed Birch. Mm-hmm. He's uh, the same he's one who cut over... the French Dispatch one, I think. Correct. He he does all of them. That's his area of expertise. He he you know he, he likes living where he lives. He doesn't need to move. He can work remotely with rest with Wes at any point. Even when Wes is in full production on another movie, he can be talking about the next one. And even you know having storyboard artists and Ed's brilliant with After Effects. So he'll take storyboards which are you know single sheets and uh, build in. Um, much more animation than just a moving mouth. So obviously it's pretty clear that the camera dolly moves that that we do um, are a huge part of the narrative storytelling device that that Wes has in his voice as a filmmaker. In After Effects, Ed can really make these things sing, you know, and he's he's really good at sound design. There's a, it's rudimentary sound design because it's just a cartoon, obviously, so there's only so much you can glean for it. But he and Wes worked those um, for many hours and, and weeks before before principal photography uh, begins to have, you know, the spirit of the movie is there. And certainly the logistics of A to B with a dolly are there, which means that you're not sat on set six weeks later going, now where should we put the camera? You know, they know where to put the camera. Um, so I love them. Although the grit, Grip wants to strangle Ed Bird. He's like, how can he, how can he put a dolly move from there to there in a cartoon that lasts for three seconds? And so that that's against the laws of physics. You know, once they actually bump the dolly down and do the actual move, it always takes a lot longer. So there's always, I think, Grand Budapest was quite close actually. Of all, of, well, of the ones I saw anyway, that was very close. But certainly for Asteroid, because we have some monumental dolly shots in asteroid um they all came in a lot longer than than ed could do them in a cartoon and the grips just say oh he's killing me here i can't do this that quick <laughs> as prepared as as those um animatics make what we're going to be doing visually they also mean that you've not just read scripts uh up to that point the script lives. you know you can watch it it becomes um a much closer facsimile of of the movie um, and actually, uh, with the Asteroid City animatic, uh, I don't know if you're aware of the timings of it in terms of prep and when we started doing it. Well, it was smack in the middle of the lockdown. Mm. West first contacted me at the end of summer 2020. And, you know, the industry was in a funny place. Then I was doing smaller things remotely from home. And he couldn't be sure about what actors would be available, if any, and when we'd actually get to do this. And the French Dispatch release itself had been delayed as all the theatres were shut. That film was ready to go a long time before it was actually released. 
So Wes had quite a bit of time on his hands with the animatic for Asteroid City because of those things. And it meant that he could start, you know, spitballing with Alexandre Desplat, the composer, who also wasn't in recording studios. He wasn't recording with musicians because of the lockdown. They were all just from the home. Ed Bursch over in Pennsylvania, Wes and Alexandre in Paris separately. And the, the animatic for... Um, as a result, the animatic for Asteroid City actually had Alexandre's composed music on there. They were only demos, but they'd already started to figure out the timbre of it and maybe some of the instrumentation of it. When it grew and changed and flourished and became much more complex than it was on the, on the initial thing, but it just means that the, the seed uh, for this movie was really well germinated. Yeah, There's such a precision to those camera moves and to the compositions mm. How does that affect your editing? Well, I have to immediately commend the grip, Sanjay Sami and his team, you know, and what they build, because they're, you know, they jerry-rig things. Some of these dolly moves, which pushes in and out and moves this way and that, you know, you can't, it's not just a piece of track. It might be a lattice work of track and a system that can come in and out and go left and right, you know, they're... They're geniuses. They're the, they're the Olympians of grip work, these guys. And we don't have motion control. So it's not like we're just going to hit the button and do the same move twice, but they managed to land these things within inches of what I need in the cutting room. So with very speed, you know, with, there's a lot of elastic, very speeding to get an incoming and an outgoing to map because some of the huge dolly moves, they're actually six dolly moves that we've stitched together. Some of them shot weeks apart with actors that were never actually in Spain at the same time. Well, what's an example of one of those? Uh, the, the, the big opening introductory dolly move that goes from June Douglas saying the prayer with the school kids right through to Steve Carell in the motel office as he hears Montana kicking the the uh, vending machine. It's a huge dolly which introduces everybody. It shows all of our characters effectively as they get out. And because of COVID and because of scheduling and because, I mean, your chances of getting something that long to actually work, we'd still be there now trying to get all that to fit with the timing like it does. We, like with many scenes that are big, you split them up. It's basically, you end up editing shots before you edit the movie with Wes. You can't just go in and go, okay, here's scene nine, it's a dolly move. You, know, you have to edit the shot first, which, you know, will mean, I think how many parts that was in. And I think one, two, three, four, I think it was five. It was actually five individual dolly shots with groups of action that's been rehearsed to death. A bit like musical choreography, when you want your dialogue and your extras so that it sings like the Swiss watch that these movies do when they're finished, you have to break them up. And so that's how we do it. And sometimes it's necessity because we haven't got this cast member. They're not coming for another three weeks, but this cast member is going to leave in two weeks. So we need to get them. And there's a, there's more than just one reason to do it, but yeah, we would uh, stitch them together. And uh, lots of references on set, lots of photographs. Weather presents its own issues. Some direction sometimes to throw it, make it a little off. The sky, the sky in Chinchon was ever-changing, but digitally we could help that. Yeah, that's 
That's not to say that we don't do some huge long dolly shots all in a one that work well, but with those really big ones with every cast member and it all clicking away like that, you know, we edit the shot first and then it goes in the movie and then we edit the movie. You mentioned editing the shot, which is interesting because it, as you pointed out, these films are like fine Swiss watch in their timing and their mm. precision. Do you even do that within a single static frame are you doing split oh, yeah. screens to put one performance on another side all the time <laughs> it's his language you know it's there's such a timbre of that you know, i mean wes he writes all these with roman copeland he's built them and the cadence and rhythm of wes's humor is totally unique to him we can approximate it and i can put scenes together where i think it's about right but wes has a metronome inside of his head that nobody else can hear but him. And it's only when it's only when it's done with everything, the pointillistic approach of making sure that this little corner works and this little line works and that that word doesn't have quite the right rhythm. And this side of the frame is not matching with that side in terms of how I want the responses to be. And it's only once we tinkered or spruced, as we call it, that his intent comes into the crosshairs of his filmmaking vision, if you see what's made. So yeah, we're constantly manipulating all sorts. And why not? The technology is there to do it. It's not like we're digitally making things up. We shoot on film, shoot on Super 35, and there are limits to what we can do. But by the same token, there's an awful lot of freedom of having the rhythm of the dialogue marry with the camera moves and propel the story and the narrative in the exact way that Wes imagined. Do you bother trying to set your own metronome that is like Wes's when you're in dailies, or do you just go with the performance that you're given in a give and take? Well, mostly when we're filming, just cataloging, getting to know and becoming familiar with the range of performance, because we do a lot of takes. And when you do a lot of takes, each actor has their own rhythm of where the good stuff comes. For instance, Wes doesn't cut camera if he doesn't have to. We tend to just burn a whole reel of film without stopping and just keep going. So the footage itself is a behemoth that needs taming. So some of the scenes that we've shot dailies for, we might not actually visit and put together until we'd finished filming. And that's that those choices are coming from Wes because he knows what he wants you to look at and what you what he doesn't? Yeah, to a degree. Or just when we put this together, we're gonna put it together, not you. <laughs> Got it. Meaning you and him. That's right. Yeah. And Wes can't do it by myself. And I can't do Wes's rhythm by myself. <laughs> There's no ego here. And it was an adjustment on the Grand Budapest because I'd never worked like that before. When we get these things together and watch it, then there's a lot of discussion because not everything works how it should. And particularly with complex narrative structures as we have on this, there's lots of tinkering to be had and it becomes a very open forum of, hey, this feels like a state of the nation scene. So I think we should bring it nearer to the events that they're all talking about because I think that'll make it play better. And there's lots of experimentation that uh, goes on after that. West doesn't want to see an assembly of the whole film, how's it going? He knows how it's going. He knows what he's got and he knows how it's together. And our time is far better spent 
me getting to know the material. So when we do get to put the scene together, it's in that middle bit after, after the struggle of getting that line right. Once we've done that, so take 16 onwards, there's a really nice bit. And do you remember the one where he does this? My biggest goal is to go, I know exactly what you're talking about. Let's put it in there and start experimenting with it. When I say we fine cut the scenes, we really fine cut. If there is a perceived issue of a lack of footage or a performance bump that he doesn't feel is quite right, we will finish that scene. I do a lot of sound design as well. A lot of the sound design in the movies originates from the cutting room. That's another thing I spend a lot of time doing, even if I'm not choosing the exact performances that we're going to end up with. The soundscape and the noises of the things that occur in there, I've already got a pretty good roadmap for that. He definitely leaves me to that one. But uh, yeah, like I say, it's far better for us to spend our time really focusing on potential problem areas when we're out there during filming and the dailies are coming in. It might even be that we'll concentrate so hard on one scene. I'll be editing all through the day and Wes will be on set and he'll come in and we'll watch it. He'll give loads of notes, say we need to do this and this, leave that with you. I'll shoot tomorrow. Let's see how it looks tomorrow evening. Um, so there might be three, four days go by where we're really fine putting the scene. And I'll have missed the dailies that are coming in those days because I haven't had time to do it. So then I have to do this speed catch up. From the fact that you've got this animatic and just from looking yep. at the film, it looks like he would shoot with very little coverage. Is that true? It's lots of takes, but not so much coverage. What are you getting on it? Exactly. West does not like to waste time, money, or film. With the animatic and with his ownership of the words that the actors say, the best thing for him is to know exactly where the camera's going. And then it's about harvesting as much performance material as you can get. It's about giving the actors the broadest canvas for them to explore the words and come up with things that are interesting, heartfelt, unique, surprising. I think it was John Hughes who just, who said that coverage thing, that's somebody who doesn't know how to direct because you make those decisions up front and there's no reason for coverage. A crazy way to well, think for most of us. It is. And I think there is a handful of directors of whom you could, you could say that it's absolutely the case. And Wes is a prime example of that. I think there's a thrill in editing material that hasn't been conceived in that way. I think when I was in the cutting room and, and experimenting with what's possible in there, there were films by say Soderbergh or Michael Mann, and then a little bit later, Paul Greengrass, where that's abjectly not the case. Like coverage is king. You spray the thing obviously the documentary style that leads itself to the drama infused in those films that they were working on. But that's just as enjoyable. It's just very different. You need coverage for that. And the chance for really flamboyant jump cuts and poetic cutting between takes that are actually the same setup, but slightly different because the camera's in it. There's a real dynamism that you put into it that way, but there's no room for that with how West constructs his movies. There's times when you go, ah, doesn't quite fully hold in the wide shot as we thought we might have hoped. We do need some coverage. So there, there are scenes where the coverage was shot that we didn't use. And there are scenes where we didn't have coverage. And then when putting it together, we went, we'd better get that. But largely there's the John Houston approach. There's a real distinct roadmap, what we need to get out there. Did you use any temp score? No, on this, no, because most of it is source. Most of it, which I loved when we were doing it and when I saw the animatic was 
the music of the period, or interesting music of the time, just drifting in off a jukebox or playing on someone's radio in one of the other cottages. It just drifts through and the desert air itself and steeps the place in the nostalgia of, of the set, of the, of the era that we were setting this in. Wes has worked closely with Randall Poster for many years, our music supervisor, who's just a wonderful font of knowledge and choice when it comes to source music like that. So we, we had a huge array of wonderful music of the era to, to be playing around with. So in a sense, we tempted with that. The performances are very stylized. How do you look at a Wes Anderson daily and find that great moment, know that you're finding the right take? That is the challenge of these things. The Willow the Willis business performance, really. And I think with Asteroid City, even more so, and even more challenging to do that because of the dual narrative and because of the fact that obviously whenever we're in Asteroid City, we're assuming with the layer cake of the narrative that they're on stage and they're performing and it's a little bit over the top. So it was even harder to gauge, is this just eccentric enough just flamboyant enough to support that narrative structure and yet grounded enough to keep it from looking silly. And I think it's never one take. As I discussed before, because most of the takes where you're really looking for this are the emotional takes, the overs and the conversations where the biggest emotional heft needs to be lifted. And you feel it in the rhythm of watching that whole day's rushes of that scene, you feel a hot spot. It's never just one, but all actors are different. Obviously there's a warming into it. And sometimes there's a struggle with a certain line. There are certain struggles and warming up that you have to get to. And there's then beautiful purple patch where you think any of these could go in really genuinely, any of these could go in. And then it might tail off a bit. And then at the end, you might then just get a wild one where Wes will always say, okay, let's do a couple for the pleasure. There's a couple of instances when Augie is telling his children that their mothers died at the, in the first act, which it's just beautifully quintessentially Wes for me. We could have done it a couple of different ways. There was a beautiful series of takes where Jason Schwartzman, who I just think is amazing in this movie played it a lot more stereotypically emotional. And I really respond to that. And you put it in there and you think, yeah, that, that works on that emotional level, but it's really taken away some of the unique oddness and some of the black humor that we have to have in this scene. Not just because Wes excels at that, but just because the scene needs that. We can't overload it. Woodrow is becoming emotional. You feel for the three fragile children who can't quite understand what's going on to have it on the other side of the camera as well. Just tip the balance, you know, tip the scene into 11 instead of 10. We needed it 10. So I wouldn't say, but instantly with one particular take, do you feel rhythms of a series of them? That's a lot of fun. That is when you get the scene or the bare bones of the scene or the backbone of the scene, because you can hang it. For instance, with that one, we make two different versions of the scene with a backbone of Jason from two different spells of when we really liked what he was doing. It was emotional. It was arrogant. It was narcissistic. He's such a wonderful character for Jason. 
play and he played superbly. And it becomes a trade-off. It becomes a beauty con. You go, do we like this one or do we like that one? But it means that you've got the backbone of the scene there ready to go. I would think it's a tonal issue, right? That you can't escape the tonality of the rest of the film and jump into a, just a different movie because you've got a, this great emotional performance. No, but Jason did it in a way that, that we really had to consider putting it in the movie. So it wasn't so far off the page. I think that doesn't fit. It's a very intricate scene to get the tone right. As you say, it is my assistant, for instance, we'd, we'd look at stuff together and depending on her emotional attachments or the things that the VFX editor have been going through for the last year of himself, you bring your own lens to it and would say, I really like that take. That feels, that version of it feels like the right version of it. And then I see the narcissism that we've ended up keeping in that scene and think, no, we made the right decision with that scene. I think that's what pre-planning, having lots of time to explore things with actors, it gives you this choice to be able to tune it in a way that could go either way and either one of them could be in the movie. I've got a question from a Wes Anderson fan. There seemed to be more use of long pregnant pauses in this film. How do you get a feel for the timing of those scenes? I feel like editing for Wes could either be fun, collaborative, or stressful, micromanaged. It's all of those things. It's Dickensian. It's the best of times and the worst of times. No, it's really the best of times. I hope I'm involved in all of the West's films. We do have air in this movie. I love it. Like I was thinking of the line that's in a lot of the trailers where uh, Scarlett Johansson's character says something about, oh, can I show you or can I tell you about a nude scene? And, the, and he just sits there and then all of a sudden he goes, oh, do, oh did I not speak? How long I mean, do that, you hold on a line a classic, like that? That's a classic comedic pause. I think there's a larger thing at play, though, spotted by the Wes Anderson fan very smartly because we didn't put the movie together like that. We approached it like we've done previously and Andy has done for many years with Wes and we did with Grand Budapest, which is this thing comes back. It's fast dialogue. And lots of people talking over each other. We still have lots of that in there. The sort of the choreograph of where the words land when there's three different people speaking at the same time is also pretty wonderful too. When we watched it, it was just breathless. I think given the opening of the movie, which is beautifully languid and really sets the scene for where you are. And when we first put it together, it went too quick. There's no doubt about that. And we methodically then went about, look, let's not be afraid of desert quit. There's another one in the scene where, where Clifford is daring to climb the cactus out there. And it's his fifth ridiculous dare. And Liev, his dad, JJ, he pauses for an inordinate amount of time. And eventually, just look, what does it mean? And we stretched that as far as we had in the footage. We, we started to trust the material a bit more and trust the location a bit more and trust the set a bit more that we didn't need to constantly bombard with dialogue. And in actual fact, that wasn't helping the story settle. I think also because we're bouncing between the two narratives, it's good that we feel where we are back again in, in Asteroid City, in the desert, feel the wind, hear the insect, just settle again, or then we start. And also, there's the odd time when you think they're waiting for their cue, which kind of works for the narrative structure also. Right for your Wes Anderson fan to know that there are gaps. How to judge how long they're going to be? I don't know. There's no <laughs> formula to that. 
Just put that one in the autodidactic column. There's no formula that can tell you how long that is. We didn't manipulate either of those two moments we've discussed. The actors did though. But there are times when we do spin things out a little longer and make gaps where there weren't any, or snip out gaps where we don't need them so that we protect the gaps we really want, either for comedy or faithful. It's interesting, though, because I would guess that's what would happen. That If you've got an animatic, you don't have performance, you don't have the right. gorgeous, as you were talking about, the art direction's not there. And then when you get all that, you're like, I want to look at the art direction. I want to see the yeah. performance. That leads to things opening up a bit more. When we make the animatic, we've all poured over the script. Wes sends me a script and yeah, this one probably more than the others, it needed more readings for me before I would talk to him. By the time the animatic's there and we're ready to shoot this thing, everybody knows it intimately. So we know the script, we know the story. And you forget actually that a fresh pair of eyes is not going to receive it as well because they still have that working out period to do that we all did months ago. Let's talk about this scene with Margot Robbie at the end where she plays this actress who was supposed to be the wife, but she gets cut from the film. Right? She does this entire monologue where she speaks both parts of both characters' roles. Talk to me yep. about editing that because that seemed to me very complex. In or truth, <laughs> the opposite. Watch it again. Okay. And... Every time she's speaking lines that Augie says, we're on Augie. And every time she's speaking lines that she says, we're on her. The bigger kind of experiments we did there was we had three different sizes on them. The wide shot, the closer side shot, actually four angles on them, and then two closer versions front on. So the trickier job was, okay, emotionally, where do we go in? Where do we save these? stunning close-up shot. Do we go in on this line? Is that the most emotional point? What's the best emotional ramp to get us to those closer shots at the end? That was more difficult to work out. That actually, the size thing might have been what I was thinking about with the complexity because you are looking at a very wide shot where they're on each side of the screen. They're almost off screen to the sides and then you've got closer side shots and then the front close-ups. So maybe it was just being interested in how you determined which coverage to be in. I think, again, it goes back to making sure that we don't tip things and the needle doesn't fit to 11 because on the page, when you see that scene and hear the words, it's beautiful. It's just beautifully mournful, real emotional dialogue between someone who's going to lose their partner and what that partner's telling, telling them they're going to have to do for the future when, when they're gone. It's not that West deliberately tries to underplay it or undercut it, but if we just fired up the violins and went to the close shots <laughs> on the lines where they're saying those beautiful words, then it pushes it into over-sentimentality. We're allergic to that. There's a place for it, but just not in these movies. West. He's a film historian and an excellent one and a very deep knowledge he has about film history and the classics. And he really wants to preserve the power of the close-up. I think right away, even how the scene is written in that, ah, she's a maiden-waiting in a, in, a, in a play across the way there. This is actually the most important 
bit of dialogue in the film. It's the one that touches on grief closest. It's the one that explains the tragedy and the personal angles of the story, which is the main story in the movie for Augie and his children. And not only did she not make the final movie, she got cut from the final plate. So right from the concept stage, we're underplaying the sentimentality of it. And I think it's so brave and so beautiful. You've edited for other directors. How is collaborating with Wes different than any of the other directors? It's a whole spectrum. I've worked with directors that are similar to Wes and directors that are very, very different to Wes. You can see from his films that his approach to making a movie is totally unique. So in that sense, it's, there's nobody uh, close to him. But, um, you know, the the pointillistic approach of every every syllable, every corner of the frame, every word, everything is valuable. We must gather everything. We must then consider everything visually. That's one thing I really appreciate about Wes is he's a strong captain. And once we've done a scene, it's done. It stays done. There's no sort of second guessing. It's an exhaustive, intense process to get to where we get to with each scene. But once it's done, we're just super confident that's how that scene is now. That lives on its own and it can be left to do that. We shift things around, like I said, and we put bits of air in here and there. But fundamentally, I can show you a scene we put together when we were filming in Chinchon itself and he was still directing, shooting and dealing with megacast. And there's many of them that, that haven't changed a single frame right up until film's release. It's the precision and the confidence in knowing that once we've been precise and done the process, that it, that's right, it's correct now. Um, there are other directors I've worked with where very similar traits, very keen to, to rinse everything out of it and check every vocal performance. And, ah, that syllable's getting a bit lost. Let's file through and get a better one. Or ah, the, the inflection goes up on a stomach. What if we go down? It's that sort of fantalist approach that I've seen before in others, but never as, as powerfully and as confidently as, as with Wes. Before I let you go, you're working on the next film already with Wes, aren't you? I'm not working uh, on it already, okay. but the animatic is living and breathing. I've seen bits of it. I've read the script. We're going to do it. It's happening. Yeah. In that sense, my wish has come through. I get to do another Wes movie straight away. Fantastic. Thank you, Barney, very much for your time and for this fascinating look into this film. You're most welcome, Steve. Good luck. That's it for Art of the Cup this week. Thank you so much for listening. Again, if you'd prefer to read this interview with visual support and clips and trailers, head on over to borisfex.com AOTC, where there's a ton of great expert content for filmmakers of all types. Also, check out my book, Art of the Cut, Conversations with Film and TV Editors for a topic-driven curated look at the craft of editing. Thanks to Barney Pilling, ACE, for joining me on Art of the Cut. Thanks to Ijaz Nuhu for editing today's podcast. And thanks to our partner, Boris FX, and to our sponsor, Jump Desktop. Be sure to check them out at borisfx.com and jumpdesktop.com slash cut. I'm Steve Hallfish. Thanks for listening. And please tell all the editors and filmmakers that you know that to get more great Art of the Cut interviews every week, please subscribe on your favorite podcast app. And for a great feed of editing wisdom from Art of the Cut, follow me on Twitter at at Steve Holfish or Insta at AOTC Podcast. Mm-hmm.